0: Okay, we're ready, right? We're ready? You know, it's uh, really easy. Matter of fact, it's too easy to be overly impressed when somebody has a list of credentials and we lose sight of the fact sometimes when we look at the outward things that the inward uh, achievement, uh, not the outward achievement, is what validates someone before God. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here uh, as we looked at it uh, last week and the week before. There's, uh, I think, a much misplaced emphasis on things that we can look at in this world There can be objective standards that we have to evaluate a person's performance or his competence. And Paul faced this problem because there were false teachers uh, charging him of um, really not being competent. That's really what the, uh, the issue is. The Corinthians had this objective standard then because that's what it was passed on to them, and so they judged uh, his competency. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were judging whether he was competent or not. And uh, we know that this is a God-given thing that God uh, does. It's not humanly achieved. It's something that God uh, gives. And I think it's forgotten, definitely seen in the modern culture, that it's oriented to such signs of approval that are overt. People can see them outwardly and then they must be great because they do this and they do that. So they get the applause, they get all the kudos, right? That's the way the world looks at it. But God looks at it differently. He looks at it from the inside. Who is adequate? Who is competent to take on the demands of preaching the gospel to a lost and broken world that we live in today? Who's competent? Who's competent to do such a thing? Who is adequate to take on such a monumental, eternally significant thing such as being a human instrument to people that need the gospel preached to them. Who's competent to do that? Who's capable? We are containers of the sweet aroma that God has put in us. We contain it, and that sweet aroma goes up to God. The sweet aroma is taken in by the ones who see that they're drawn by God. The others see it as death. And that's what it is. It's a message of life or death Brought up to that brink is what the gospel does. We have such a ministry to carry on. As Paul did, as the early church did all the way up through these 2,000 years, they kept preaching that gospel and discipling people. Paul was a divine instrument under the very careful eyes of the Almighty God Himself. And he was fulfilling the very eternal purpose that God had for him and of course there's such scrutiny that came upon him at this time uh, there's, there's a question that's asked in chapter 2 verse 16 of Second Corinthians where we have been and it says to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life and who is adequate for these things it's dealing with eternity who's adequate to bring the matters of eternity to people and that's the question. And today we'll actually get into where the answer really is. We finally get to that, that section. He, he starts the question in chapter 2, 16, and then he answers it in chapter 3, verse 5. His competency was at stake in Corinth. Not that he didn't have the competency, he sure did, but to the people it was at stake. And that's what we have looked at the last couple of weeks the people should have known better, shouldn't they? Of all the things that He did for them, the answer to the question is found in chapter 3, verse 5. And it says not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. That's how we do it. That's how we're saved, and that's how we live the Christian life. This is a constant in anything that we do in the Christian life is that that our adequacy is from God. The only person who's competent is the one whom God has made a believer and a minister. Self-made ministers are incompetent. And there were plenty of those in Corinth. But it wasn't that God selected Paul because there was something in his human life because he was so intelligent as he was, very well educated. But that didn't make him desirable to God. It wasn't any of that at all. God can use that, but that wasn't why God chose Timothy, in first, uh, or Paul, but in First Timothy 1.12 it says, Christ Jesus our Lord strengthened me, considered me faithful, put me into the ministry, even though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. That's what Paul was. Saul. Before he became a Christian. A violent aggressor. He was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer. And you know what God did? He did it just to show His mercy. He puts mercy on display by taking a guy like Paul, Saul, and doing what He did with him. Matter of fact, He chose him so that His glory would go on before Him there. The very glory of God. He takes a guy like Saul and turns him into that. A violent aggressor against Christianity. He demonstrates His love, His grace, His mercy, His glory. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners against everything I was in order for God to display His grace. This is what He did to me. God chose me. He made me adequate. And you can look at yourself and say, man, I have been a mess. I look back at it now and I say it was only by the grace of God because I look at where I was at. How many can say that? I would think that everyone here would say that. might be different measurable standards but it doesn't matter. <laughs> you were lost in, in, in sin and he, makes, he chooses and he makes us competent. It's incredible. Paul had every reason to be confident because he was adequate in Christ. And that's what he knows. And that's what we'll be focusing on today. That's where we're hitting at. Confidence because we have the sweet-smelling fragrance of the gospel that has been put in these dispensers and it's called the New Covenant. And we have the joy, the opportunity, the privilege of ministering, serving that gospel up. And it has superseded the Old Covenant this new covenant has. It's a completion of all the promises. It's the work of Christ on the cross. Have you surveyed it today? That's where we look at what a great ministry Paul had. It all came from God. And that's what we all have since we are open letters. Remember last week, we are open letters for all to read. They may just read your life first, how you respond to different things. Sometimes you may not have even had a chance to say anything and people are already reading you. And so we're open letters. That's a good thing if Christ is working in you. We serve the living Word of God of the new covenant to people. And that's where we're going to be today. Let's uh, turn to chapter 3 of Second Corinthians. And let's stand. Get a moment to stretch. Just for a second we are found uh, in verse 4 about this confidence. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Father, thank You for Your precious, amazing Word. And as we go through it, Lord, studying words, studying phrases, studying these verses, we look to You to speak to us and so that we can not only learn about it and put it in our head, but to be able to practically do this serving of the New Covenant because of what You've done. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are you confident? confident through Christ? Paul was confident. Very confident person. I'm sure before his uh, Christian days, he was very confident in his religiosity, in his Judaism that he practiced. He was very confident in that as he persecuted Christians. But that's a different kind of confidence that he learned that he had. The word there is hikanos, And it means moving toward the goal... There's a goal, there's a victory. Uh, It's dealing with courage, dealing with boldness. He's courageous, he's bold, he's resolute. Paul had the courage, had the boldness to preach the fearless gospel. He was a fearless gospel deliverer, is what he was, as he took it to people. Nothing can make Paul question what he was doing, whether it was right or not. Because you could say, well, you know, maybe he had to say, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this because I'm getting persecuted now. Or false teachers are lying about me, so I I probably ought to quit. I just don't feel too confident about it anymore. No, his face was set like flint, as it was said about Jesus. He kept marching in triumph. You remember that triumphant march that we talked a couple of weeks ago? He knows that he's carrying the fragrance, the aroma, that is spread out and diffused to people, some from life to life and others death to death. And it goes up to God and God is pleased with that. And so he knows he has that because God put that into him, so therefore he has confidence in that. It's not anything that he comes up with. It's all God's stuff. He, He believed God gave him confidence. You just trust in God. You believe in His Word and you have confidence. That's where it comes from. That's where it all stems from. The Word that He preached gave Him confidence. The Gospel should give us confidence. The Gospel of grace. I sang that song earlier. Feet, right? About grace. Grace. Because of that grace that He's given, why wouldn't we have confidence, right? We are called letters of Christ we we have the very words of Christ and the life of Christ living in us a very you know god lives in our souls we're full of that life that's what gave him great confidence let's turn to chapter 2 uh chapter 4 in second corinthians look at verse 13 how does paul have all this confidence having the same spirit of faith according to what is written i believed therefore i I believed it, I spoke. It comes right out of the Old Testament quote on there. We also believe, therefore we also speak. So he makes a quote and he says, we believe, we speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you because of the resurrection. Why wouldn't one have confidence in what we say we believe in? And then verse 12, Fifteen, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. He knows this is all pointing to the very glory of God. Now let's go to Acts. Book of Acts. Here you have the very early church. You have... Peter and John arrested they, you know, then you have the addressing of, of, of the Sanhedrin there it says in verse 13 now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John had <laughs> been arrested they had confidence and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. There it is. There's a confidence, having been with Jesus. Been with Christ. People saw them, and they observed them. They were open letters to them. And look at this. These people said, they're uneducated. Untrained men. And look at what they're speaking about. That's confidence. Confidence, because they knew what they said was true. Matter of fact, did Peter and John witnessed the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? They saw the risen Lord. Mm-hmm. How could you not be confident when somebody was killed and everybody knew it came back to life? Third day rose. Wow, that is every reason that. Paul was able to do what he did and still yet be persecuted and then later on to be killed for the faith even. Look at verse 29 same chapter. Chapter 4:29 of, of of Acts 4:29 And now Lord take note of their threats and grant that your bond servant may speak your word with all confidence. Nothing wrong with praying that you would have confidence, right? Give me that, Lord. Take note of all this persecution that's going on, and grant that your bondservants speak your word with all confidence. That we continue to speak it. That's quite a that's quite a character Paul has, isn't it? First Corinthians chapter nine, verse sixteen. For if I preach the gospel I have nothing to boast of for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He knows where it came from. He says in 17, For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full of use of my right to the gospel. So he didn't do it for money. Some people were saying that too. Anyway, confident through Christ. Through Christ toward God, it says there in our Second Corinthians passage. Chapter 3, right? Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Paul was not bragging about himself at all, was he? Not bragging at all. He's not arrogant. He's not boastful. He was just a clay pot. He was a jar of clay. It's because of Christ. He was confident. He had gifts from God. They came from God. It wasn't anything that he brought himself. Those gifts were from Christ. Let's look at Romans 15, 18. These are passages to back up just what we said. Dennis doesn't want to give you opinion to give you the Word of God. So we look at other Scriptures, and that's all part of expository preaching. Passages that will support other scriptures. A matter of fact, the best interpreter of scripture the Word of God. Let it speak for itself. It is a caged lion. What's going to happen if you let it out? 15, verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. I'm not going to speak anything of what I think, of what my opinion is, Paul says, except what Christ has accomplished through me. And what does it result in? The obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. That's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians fifteen nine and 10. 15, 9, oh, 1 Corinthians is a resurrection chapter. before he starts really getting into the resurrection, he says this, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle. This is Paul. Because I persecuted the church of God. I'm not fit for it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. And then he goes off on that grand treatise, the best resurrection chapter in the Bible, explaining what it is, found here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15. Now, Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead. How does some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And then he goes into that. He said, you know, I'm not worthy of this at all. I am not fit for it. But he says, I am what I am because of the grace of God. That's God's work. He knows His education, His way of speaking must have been incredible to an outward world. That's not what he was about. So now, confident through Christ, let's go into to part two. Dependent on God. It's found in verse five. We just have three verses this morning. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. Paul's saying here, I'll never say anything from my own ability. Those days are done. My own talent is not going to be there. I'll speak only of what Christ has has wrought through me or accomplished through me what he's done. That's the only way that I can deliver this truth. So he gives a disclaimer here that shows he's not bragging and boasting at all. It's far from it. It's it's on the opposite end of the spectrum, isn't it? Paul is not bragging. But he wants the readers to know that he's competent in Christ. He's not bragging, but he is adequate in Christ. And of course, they've been comparing Paul with Other people, Apollos, some of the false teachers, some of them made him inadequate. So he continues to go on with this. He says, if you look at the natural things at people, and you can be impressed, you need to really look at them. You need to to look at Paul before he was converted. You need to see that he wasn't in the ministry because he had the gift of gab. He could talk. He wasn't in the ministry because he was a talented communicator, which I'm sure he was. Or because he had some kind of flair for the dramatic. People are looking for something a little bit extra. Something a little bit more. They have something in the way that they dress, the way that they speak. You know, they've got all the the fancy cars and such, and so that person is successful and they they see that and they latch on. That person is really something. They follow them. The thing is, sometimes all those things, it can be a blessing. That can be good. Sometimes it can be more corrupt than uh, being of help. Paul had the credentials. That's not why he was doing what he was doing. He had a great mind. He didn't depend on that great mind. God used that great mind. He'd given him that. It was a trained mind. And he winds up using it mightily for the Lord for the right things right. as he deposits the truth. Um, he was not just an instrument of human wisdom, was he? He went into Corinth after he had been in Athens where all the philosophers were. And even Corinth, they had the intelligent people, the philosophers even there. He didn't come into Corinth with any kind of human philosophy. He says, I preach the cross christ crucified i preached the gospel. i preached the new covenant he's working up to that look at look at paul's skills let's sit about him acts chapter six uh, twenty six acts
1: twenty
0: six twenty four he's been arrested. He's before King Agrippa. Paul was saying this in his defense. Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. (laughs) This is Paul giving all these deep truths about who God is. And, you know, hey, hey, you know, he's bringing out what, what the gospel truth is built off of what the Old Testament was about. He says, Your great learning is driving you mad. It's driving you nuts. You're crazy because this is too much. You're taking this too far. You're taking this too serious. You read any of that? You can't take the gospel too serious. That's a problem. We don't take it serious enough. He's dependent on God, isn't he? He knew. Acts chapter 14, verse 12. All of this great learning. What, what's Acts 14 about? Acts 14, 12. He's... Goes he winds up at Lystra. They had their false gods there and an idolatry going on. They began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes, a god that's known for his great oratory communication skills. as yes, being an idol, whatever that is. But anyway, they... They're amazed by Paul's speaking and he's the chief speaker. I'm sure he was. But that's not what Paul's about. It's just something that God uses. 1 Corinthians one eighteen: For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Or in Second Corinthians, it talks about the ones that take in the aroma, and it's a stench to them—the aroma of the gospel. They're, it says they're perishing. Second Corinthians says it's death. But to us who are being saved, it is the power, the dunamis, the bomb of God, the power. That's what we have. It's the gospel. And we go on. It says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Look at the wisdom of the world today. The more you look at it, you see how much foolishness it is. And the only answer is the truth of the gospel. And we go on. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Who's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Ha, ha, ha. Uh love that section. Go on with that. Um, you can turn to Second Corinthians. Well, go to chapter 1, verse 26 for a moment. For consider your calling. Think about your calling, brethren. Think about it. Consider. Reckon it. That there were not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the, quote, foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the best thing the base things of the world and the dis, and the despised god has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before god some great leader of oratory skills well educated and people would say yeah he would make a great christian because he could make more of an impact because of you know what and and then people would say yeah look what God did, but look you know, what, what this man was by himself, too. You, know? you put the two together. Well, that's a man-centered gospel. That's simply not the way that it is. God doesn't use too many of them because he sometimes doesn't get the glory out of that. He always gets glory, but to the world, people would say, yeah, but do you see how amazing that, that guy was? His intelligence. Second Corinthians no. First Corinthians two verse five as he talks about this wisdom of the world. he says, So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There's our confidence right there. The wisdom of men is always going to fall. We see what's happening in the political realm. The foolishness of mankind is what it is. Absolute foolishness. And even non-Christians are saying the absolute foolishness that's going on. But it is obvious by Christians, we, we have the answer. We have truth. Go to Second Corinthians now, chapter 12, verse 10. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults. With distresses. With persecutions. With difficulties. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The power of God. We get out of the way and we let God work in this clay instrument. We are nothing. (laughs) Paul was really nothing in and of himself. The power of God operated through this human instrument. And you, did you see what happened? Consider. You see the, see the word consider there? Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. The word there is logizomite. Consider. Reckon it. You know, in Romans 6 it says to know, to reckon, and yield. Know what God has done. Reckon on that. Consider that. Take that into your mind and it says yield. Whatever He's done in your life, you do it. Mm-hmm. You yield to Him. You give your life to Him and everything. He's Lord, right? Right? When I'm weak, I'm strong. That's what Paul says. And he's reckoned that. It means there is nothing in us that allows us to make any claim that we're capable of doing anything for the glory of God, of ourselves. He says, I'm not even able to reason in my own mind and determine anything that deals with the glorious gospel of the ages. I can't reason that in my own mind. As as intelligent as Paul was, there is no way that he could reason this gospel. Or you have one dying for the sins of another, he killed people for that he 's disdaining the ability to reason anything or to think in anything in his own way. he can 't judge or assert any kind of truth unless it be that something that God has given. so we cannot understand the simple Gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. You know how simple that is? But the profoundness of it is is that nobody can figure that out and they never have. Except when God comes in through the person of the Holy Spirit and He regenerates us. Gives us life. And all of a sudden, you know what happened to you, don't you? You got regenerated. The light came on. Life happened, right? Right? Competency. That's what Paul was because of what Christ had done. That's what he's saying. Competency in our society is that it's determined by whether you get the job done or not. If you can't get it done, you're not competent. Well, that can be true, and that holds true for a worldly way, but we're talking about a spiritual competency here that goes far above that. Yeah, he had some abilities. He sure did. Speech, intellect, and to him, you know what he's saying? It was useless. <laughs> Absolutely useless. I don't trust myself, he says. I don't trust myself. There is nothing I can say that will be towards God's truth. If it's not him. I'm weak. I'm persecuted. I've been insulted. I've been distressed. Paul got to the end of his rope and he said I even got to the point of death. Matter of fact, he was a dead man as far as people are concerned. There's nothing left. you ever gone to the end of the rope. There's nothing left. That's exactly where God wants you. He wants you. Where you have nothing, all the resources are now gone, and you had one here, one there, you can always call somebody up, you know I can get some money here. I can do, you know, you can look around you know, and you have some sources, and now all of a sudden, they're gone. They disappeared, and you can't get it. And that's when God says, I'm here. All the other things you missed, because they're not there, but I'm here. He says, I am the most powerful in all the universe. He is power. What happens? He gets things out of the way. Paul reached that many times. Of course, not only at salvation, but throughout his ministry. And he knew that he couldn't trust in anything. He says, I'm absolutely powerless. I'm not here because I'm a clever speaker, he says. I'm not here because I'm a learned individual. I'm here because God has placed me here. God has humbled me before His truth. With the power of His Spirit, you combine the truth of God, of all the universe, and the Spirit of God, and that's where we want to be. That's where we have now to be at the point where God uses us. Paul is saying something like this. You can take the Bible away from someone like me. You can take the Holy Spirit away from me, let's say, if that would be the case, and I become the world's biggest ignoramus. I mean, I'm a fool. If I don't have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, nothing else matters. It's I'm just like everybody else out there poking around trying to figure out what's going on in this world. There's a lot of unbelievers out there that are are really perturbed what's going on in our world today, and they're mad, but what do they do with it, they just stay mad. They do different things. They don't have the answers. Paul says, I wouldn't even reason anything out of myself about anything. I wouldn't reason it. That's that's what he's saying here in this third chapter, verse five. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. That's how empty we are in ourselves. He says, I don't have the ability. I can't I can't reason anything out of myself. Paul says, I wouldn't even consider anything as coming from myself that can be worthy of anything. (laughs) He has nothing worthy to give anybody. And so are we. Remember 1 Corinthians 15.10, God is the one who made me who I am. By the grace of God, I am who I am. (laughs) By the grace of God. We're no longer our own, are we? We don't own ourselves. We don't run the show. And we found out every time we do run it that we fail every time. Can you guys identify with that? But if we are successful, confident, we can say, oh, God did all that. He worked through me. You know what you're doing then? You're giving all the glory to God. Otherwise, if you have a little bit, like one half of 1%, and God has 99.5%, you get a little bit of the glory. God doesn't get all the glory. He gets most of it. (laughs) Well, we work up to point number three. It's about the new covenant. And it's a transition time now. That's what verse 6 is going to do. It's going to function as a transition to an extended treatment now of the superiority of the new covenant versus the old covenant. And so... We're getting ready to move into a little bit different thought. And so he uses his confidence and, and the advocacy that God does. And he says in verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And that's all we're going to do today, and we'll be done. He says we're servants. The emphasis now is on the ministry. Paul did in the ministry that he had. He he served the New Covenant. Um, The word there for servant, you have that servant in verse 6. You might have minister. Same thing. uh, The word there is diaconus. We're all very familiar with that. We hear that word a lot. Paul uses it a lot. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians, I think 40% of the times he uses diaconus, it's used in 2 Corinthians. That's a pretty big percentage just for one, one letter, isn't it? He's dealing with uh, this ministry. Paul's point is that he's competent as a minister. It's competent, obviously, where it's coming from. He's competent to serve the new covenant. Now, finally in this sixth birth, he, he comes to the ground, really, is of what this confidence is. Now, he's already stated in verse 5, our adequate is here from God, who also made us adequate. And that's the answer to the false teachers, isn't it? I mean, there it is. We're adequate because we come from God. He made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. And there's the ground of his confidence. That's the very basis. The new covenant. The basis of the confidence. The contrast between the letters written on stone. The law, Ten Commandments, representing that. Versus what is written on the heart. And so we are beginning to see, and what we are introducing to the rest of the section, dealing with the covenant, it's a contrast between the two covenants. You want to live under the old covenant, you want to live under the new covenant. Now when Paul mentions the new covenant, that's an expression... I think that everybody here have heard that very much. Um, most often, we think of the New Testament, but "dithake" uh, should be translated "covenant," not "testament." You might have that particular word in your English Bibles, because um, when we think of New Testament, we think of you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, we should, but um, there were no Old and New Testaments. When Paul wrote this in his day, he he was writing, right. he was writing scripture, and you know there were many other letters that go out, and then others from the other apostles and such. And it was called the writings, graphe, uh, scriptures. New Testament applies to the Christian writings. That's what we refer to. That's known in our time, and of course, you know the, the Christian writings were given a canonical status status. We go into a little bit of this and you can say, this is kind of getting over my head. Don't worry about it. You can say, well, how did we get the New Testament? It really wasn't claimed in canon as a standard in the first century when Paul's writing this, and really not even in the second century, although all this was evolving in that sense towards that, but we think of the New Testament writings in conjunction with the Old Testament writings or the Jewish scriptures, and here are the the new... uh, letters that were written after Christ. Uh, the process of being canonized was a long one. Of course, it already, the Old Testament was already given. That's what Jesus had read and the apostles and anybody, that was anybody in the Jewish, Jewish religion. Uh, that was That was considered the Word of God. Now, you have these New Testament letters that come along. Clement of Alexandria... And origin and they're all within early 200s to 250, somewhere about that time they're considered to be early church fathers. And they are one of the first, really, probably, uh, to distinguish between old and New Testament writings. You're already into the third century, in the 200s. The first century is when Jesus lived, the apostles lived. John was writing in 90 A.D., somewhere in that vicinity, when he wrote Revelation. So he he lived up to about the second century. You have early church fathers in that extended... The, these thoughts out of what the apostles had written and they wrote like what we would be considered as commentary some of them wrote the scripture down that they wrote and you can find it in all the early church writings you can find the whole New Testament in bits and pieces as they copied it down and put it there and so even if some of the things get lost which they did here it was still contained even in the early church fathers writings. sounds like we're getting away from you a little bit and say well how do we get the New Testament well uh, along about 360, there was a first church document that used the phrase New Testament. Now it's written down as that. It's a distinct body of literature. and It wasn't until about 400 that um, you get the New Testament then appearing, even though it had always been there. The letters were all there. They were church circular letters and they were going forth. What you have today is something that you can rely upon. is The reason I took a few minutes to go into that, you could spend weeks on this, I could spend a whole message on that. I went through it very quickly. But just to say, when we're dealing with this New Covenant, Old Covenant, New Testament, Old Testament, um, it's something that what we have is very reliable. It's true. And whenever they make claims, they backed it up. And there were apostles who gave their lives for this truth that they gave. Like those ones who ran out when Jesus was being crucified. They thought they were going to get killed too, didn't they? So they ran like scaredy cats. The power of God came on them. them, And they became nuke and what they did is they had uh, a message that they were willing to give up their lives for would would one die for a lie if they made that resurrection story up no that many would they die for that message that's what their message is revolving around so covenant let's let's get to that and let's define it a little bit because that's he says we were made adequate as servants of a new covenant as ministers of a new covenant servant we we just we just serve this There's, we're nothing important we just serve it out a covenant simply, just simply put, I mean, this is about as basic as I can put it out. It's an agreement between two parties. It's an agreement that they enter into. You start with that. Does that help? Two people come together. They make some kind of a pact, a covenant. It can be a bilateral agreement. There's two kinds that will we'll make it real simple. Bilateral means, bi means what? Two. You have two people agreeing to do, each one doing their part. They write this down. They make an agreement to do a handshake, you know, to ratify that. They've made a covenant. Both of them are supposed to do their parts. That's bilateral. Then there's a unilateral agreement. Bilateral. Una is what? One. That means one party is responsible. And he's the one that arranges and makes the terms that... He dictates the terms. He's going to do this. He's the superior party of this agreement this covenant. Now when God makes a covenant with us as far as the new covenant is concerned and the other covenants we'll look at in a moment hmm, um, you will usually see unilateral. The, The Mosaic law was bilateral. Do you get the point? That's the one that was failed because it God gave them this. Here's what He's going to give them if they follow this. And the people say, Yes, we'll do it. And then immediately they disobey. So, bilateral, unilateral. Usually when we're, when we're speaking the grace of God in this new covenant, it's unilateral. Uh, it says new. That's kainos. That means quantitatively better. In quantity, it's new, it's much better. In, in, uh, and I was going to go through these and turn to see the, the different covenants that are made, but I do have them, I think, written down in your outlines. There's the Noah covenant. That's with Noah. You, you guys remember the rainbow, right? I'm not going to destroy the world in this manner again by flood. And so he made a Noah covenant. He, there's his promise. And then you get Moses, and that's a Mosaic covenant, and that's the law. That's the Ten Commandments, the whole law that's put forth, the ceremonial law and everything. And that was a bilateral covenant. If you do these things... God did His part. They didn't do their part. They failed. They're not going to get saved on that count. Uh, the next one would be uh, the Priestly Covenant. It's found in num- uh, Numbers 25. That's a perpetual priesthood. And of course, it's leading to the ultimate priest, the great high priest, the great mediator, Jesus Christ himself. And there's the promise. It's all leading to Christ. You get the Abrahamic covenant, and he says, hey, you look up in the sky, you see the stars, you know, all those stars, and that's, you know, I give you a promise that the descendants of you will be like all the number of the stars that are. You're going to uh, certainly uh, perpetuate this race. Of course, it's going to ultimately go on Christ and Messiah. uh, What do we have here? We have a unilateral covenant because God is going to do that. I will. When God says, I will, now it's different than the mosaic Abrahamic covenant is before the Mosaic covenant.
1: That's
0: right. Abraham's around 2000 BC. Moses is 1500 BC, and he shows that the law is going to condemn you. The law is good. It's great. It's holy. And I'll tell you what it can do. It can drive one to Christ, because people will see their sin. But it is absolutely powerless to save you. It cannot. It's not designed for that way. So I think Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31, we have to turn to. I just can't believe this time has gone this quickly. And I probably am not going to be able to go to where I wanted to go today, but I do want to get on atonement just for a moment. Speak a few minutes and we're going to be done here, but um wow, Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31 easy to remember. 31.31 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, or Moses, in that day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, that bilateral covenant which we broke, the law is still there. It's never been removed. It's there. Right. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Sounds like our Second Corinthians passage, doesn't it? In the heart. And on their heart, I will write it. They're living letters, aren't they? And I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. And he speaks right on into the very kingdom of God. Jeremiah 31. There's passages in Ezekiel 16, 37, Hebrews 8. We are not going to dismiss those. We're going to have to bring them back next week because that's really what we're getting into. This is just an introduction. And... Of course, it will be dealing with this new covenant and I'll give a lot more depth on it. But I do want to go to this because this will lead us into our Lord's Supper. This is kind of what I had intended. If you turn to Matthew 26, 28, Jesus at the Passover, disciples there, the night before His death, and they're celebrating the Passover. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus is now saying some words that they've never heard in their tradition at their Passover. He adds some things that they're going, wow, what, he's changing it. What, what's going on here? You go by rote. This is the way this, this goes. Well, verse 26, while they were eating and supper that night, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, He broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. This is representing me. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Drink, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. For forgiveness of sins. What's going on here? This is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. A covenant has to be ratified, it has to be like, you know, shaking hands. Here, the blood, what Christ is going to do. this is the covenant that Lord Jesus is ratifying, the New Covenant. It's a, unil- uh, a unilateral covenant, something that God determined to do. God is going to do something for those who are the recipients of the New Covenant blessings. The ones who are going to receive that covenant is used in ancient times, all through the Old Testament. A lot of times you will see the word "soon." And it means an agreement between two people. Then you see the word uh, diatheke. We're talking unilateral kind of covenant. And so this is the characteristic as we look at that. So we look in Matthew twenty-six, twenty-eight, and he says this. And I put it in, in my words here. There must be a shedding of blood to satisfy the divine holiness of God for your forgiveness. Now that's the leading idea of the new covenant. And Jesus is saying this at this time. So for one thing, it is what? It's a unilateral kind of covenant that only Christ can do. Number two, it's propitiatory. Propitiation. What does that mean? Propitiation means the holiness of God. His great righteousness is satisfied. Amen. What's propitiation? Satisfaction. God Amen. is satisfied. He's satisfied with what was done at the cross. Your salvation doesn't depend on you or anything. It depends upon what Christ did at the cross. It's propitiatory as well as unilateral. We're using a lot of big terms. Are you getting it? Propitiation, satisfaction. God's satisfied. His holiness demands what? Perfection. Not a one sitting here never has been in human history and never will be that can go and die for our sins. Only one Jesus Christ. It's propitiatory. And here's the next one. I guess we're going to pretty well have to end on this but I really wanted to get in to this substitutionary penal propitiatory atonement. (laughs) Thirdly, it's substitutionary. That means as he said here in this passage this is blood of the covenant which is to be shed on behalf of uh, the many, on behalf of them. That that substitution, He takes our place. When one takes their place on the behalf of many, that means he substituted for where we should be. And we don't pay for our sins. A view of the atonement is here. This is deep stuff, folks. This is what it is all about. This is the central focus. This is the cross. We're talking about a view of the atonement. Many people, and I kid you not, many, there are books coming out from the evangelical churches today that deny flatly, and I'm not making this up, I've read the books, I've seen them, deny flatly about that atonement, the substitutionary atonement. He just came here to set an example. That's what they're saying. But no, that blood satisfied the God's justice because otherwise His wrath has to come upon all of us. And it's not made poss- just possible, I'm getting into limited atonement, Everybody limits it in some way or another because not everybody gets saved. We're talking about actual, particular redemption. It's not made just possible, but as you say, it's actual. It's been done.
1: Get this.
0: Your Arminian churches of the day, which are most, say this. He made it possible at the cross when he shed the blood it seems very delicately defining here but think about it if it only makes it possible what do we have to do? and I know what they'll answer you have to put your faith in Christ well faith is a big deal it's huge we talk about it all the time but it's not going to be your faith that satisfies God He's already been satisfied. That was ratify. It's not a make, a, a, a make it possible for those people. Okay, I've done my work. Now it's up to them. That's a... What kind of a covenant? It's not unilateral. It's bilateral. And we won't do it because the ones in the Old Testament didn't do it either if they uh, relied on that. It's not necessarily actual, is it? If that be the case... They abandon every precise concept of Christ and His death and substitution they deny. Because if He substituted, that means He took your place on the cross. It was paid. Nothing else. It's been paid in full, as many of the hymns will say. Substitution by its very nature means an effective relationship that has happened. It's effective. It secures... Actual immunity from the obligation our obligations it now secures us that we do not owe anything for the person in who's, who places himself in this substitute that it acted it's not a work that secures actual some kind of obligation if it is it's not a substitution do you see why they're ruling out that substitution very much so if it only accomplishes possible salvation. What did Christ accomplish at the cross? He died for sinners. That's what we know. We know everybody's out there sinners. We take that message there. But who did Christ die for? Substitution means to pay the penalty for someone. The Lord Jesus died a substitutionary death. He dies bearing our penalty. And heaven can no further bring judgment on us. If there is some where, if he pays for somebody's sins, and it's still for them to do something, you have a double jeopardy here. Because that means he still could judge the person and send them to hell, despite the fact of what Christ accomplished at the cross. And that's double jeopardy. Nobody wants a double jeopardy. He died bearing our penalty. He can bring no further judgment on us. We have no legal obligation to satisfy God's holiness. We never can. And as we've said here, we're adequate only in Christ. That's what is seen. God will not twice demand a payment. There's Christ's payment, but now you have to pay. Do you see what I'm saying? That is what is being offered in the evangelical world of our day. It's been going on for about 100 years or so. 150 years. That's what the Reformation was really based upon. Based upon the work of God and a unilateral covenant and a man-centered gospel started entering in and always wants to enter in. It's called Semi Pelagianism. It's called Arminianism. And some people will accept all four of those, but yeah, but Christ didn't die just for his elect. He died for everybody. The thing is, we don't know who they are. So we can say, hey, Christ dies for the sinners. All are sinners. But the ones he dies for have eternal life, and it's forever. It's not based on what they do. But now as a result of that, because of the New Covenant that's in us, this letter of life that's in us, now we desire, we love the Word of God. Psalm 119, the whole longest chapter of the whole Bible, is about the Word of God. It's about the Old Covenant, New Covenant, and it's now in our hearts. Thank you guys for... Let me stay with this. We have been made adequate and equipped. And there's one scripture, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. I've got to close this out. Uh, and, and we'll get into this from here on out. We are entering into that part now. Uh, next week we'll go into the New Covenant. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate. Equipped for every good work. Folks, if you're a Christian, you are being equipped by the very Word of God. Let's pray. Father,